and welcome to the BA Brew. I'm Debbie. And I'm Candice. And I'm Carl. And I'm Lisa. And today we're going to be discussing a subject that is quite dear to my heart, which is requirements and the essentials of requirements because we are very fortunate that Carl and Candice are joining us for this discussion because they've just written a book called Software Requirements Essentials. So I'm going to come to you first, Carl, and ask you the obvious question that business analysts and requirements engineers ask, which is why? Why did you write this book? Well, that's a very good question, and I can actually prove we've written a book because we have a very cool cover right here, and uh, this came out just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I wrote this book with, uh, without ever intending to do so. I had no notion of writing that, but about 10 years ago, uh, Joy Beatty and I wrote a book called Software Requirements Third Edition. I had written the first edition a long time ago, and then a second, and then we did the third. And that was a seriously big book. It was about yes. 650 pages long. That's not something you're going to read in an evening and say, oh, yeah, I can do this tomorrow. But it's very comprehensive, and I think there's, there's a place for that. And it turns out there's a lot of really big books on business analysis and requirements out there. And it also turns out that people are busy. So about uh, last May, May of uh, 2022, um, I just felt like writing something. So I posted a little article called The Six Most Important Requirements Practices. Um, on my medium.com account. And the response to that was tremendous. I, I was totally blown away by how people responded to that. And I started thinking, maybe there's a, a book in here. And then I started thinking, maybe it's time for a paradigm shift. Instead of having yet another comprehensive edition of a great big, huge book, maybe we need a small book. Maybe we need a book that says, let's skim across the top of the most important things you need to know, the most important things that basically every software and systems project should do around requirements that's very readable and very short, but has a lot of stuff packed into it to give you a little bit of, of what, a little bit of why, and a little bit of how to get you motivated and started to move on into the bigger books when you need more detail. And that was our intent with writing this book. Alice, that's really interesting, because I think you're right. Sometimes we can look at books in our particular area of work or discipline, and there's a lot of information, but sometimes you want it distilled, don't you? Mm -hmm. Particularly, as you say, if, if maybe you're getting started. So, Candice, can I come to you? And can I ask you, because you're working with Carl, and Carl's an old friend of the brew, um, but can I ask you, how did you go about identifying, well, what are the essential practices? Sure. So obviously, Carl had an initial list of six that came from the article, um, and he kind of brainstormed, probably even before coming to me, uh, what he thought the 20 were. And 20 was kind of a random number. It could have been 19 or 21, but 20 was nice and round. Um, and so I reviewed that, and, and most of them made sense. So we made small tweaks as we went through, like um, especially around uh, defining the solution, uh, which I think is practice number three. That one went through multiple iterations before we landed on like what the final practice title would be, um, especially with regards to understanding business problems and understanding your business objectives. So it really started with Carl and then was an iterative, iterative process as we wrote the book. In fact, I can, I can step back from that uh, and give you the part that started with Carl uh, that led to that is I took the third edition, which describes about 52 practices 
And Debbie, you wrote a book once that describes 99, if I recall correctly, business analysis practices. And the, the uh, Babock has about a billion practices in it. You know, so there's all these big books. So I looked at the 52 or so in the third edition, and I just went down the list and I said, which of these strike me as particularly important and particularly universal? as applying to basically every project, no matter what kind of product people are building, no matter what kind of development environment they're, they're using or development approach they're taking. And that's how I ended up with the, with the 20 and then, then what Candace said. Yes, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think when you work in projects or even pre-projects, you do look for the essential sometimes because we don't have time to do everything. So I'm, I'm gonna come to Lisa now. Sorry, Lisa. But what would you say would be, in your experience, some of the essential things that, that you do around requirements? Around requirements? Um, well, actually, I've looked through today, I've looked through the sort of contents um, of your book, and I have to say it's wonderful because you've you've taken your 20 different practices and you've kind of you distribute, distributed it around the requirements engineering framework. And actually the bit that I really liked was before that, you've got a lay in the foundation um section. And it's got all the things that you've that kind of answers my question, Debbie, because there's things like um, you know, sort of setting your objectives, setting your boundaries, identifying stakeholders and bringing them into it. Just those kind of things, really. And I think that that's um it's exactly where you should start. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I I quite like the framework as well. I, I think I always say to people, if you're thinking about requirements, if you've got a framework to hang it off, it doesn't often make it easier to learn and understand and to practice and apply. So I I really like the fact that you've applied a framework as well and you've you've slotted the 20 practices across that framework. I think that that really works well. And it's it's quite immediate then for somebody who's mm -hmm. who's looking at this. Um, but if I pick out a practice that I particularly love in requirements, okay, it is modeling. Because I love models. We do too, <laughs> both of us. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I just think, well, I mean, you know, we all know that if you can draw a diagram, you can encapsulate something on a page that could take you, you know, many, many pages to actually write about in, in text. But I do think that requirements modeling piece is such a critical practice. I, I don't know how you felt about that when you were writing the book. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we put a huge amount of stuff about modeling in there. But as Lisa pointed out, you know, we structured the practices through the requirements engineering framework of sub-disciplines. Uh, and I, I'd subdivide requirements engineering broadly into requirements development and requirements management. And within requirements development, we've got elicitation, analysis, specification, and validation. And those aren't linear, you know, they're all interwoven in the way you actually work on a project, but it's a nice grouping of different kinds of things that you do. And uh, there are, there's ways to use modeling throughout that. And so we've got modeling appearing in many of the practices in the various sections. And you know, I, I really got turned on to modeling in 1986, about 100 years ago, I took a class called Jordan Structured Analysis and Design, and it totally changed the way I thought about software development. And Candace, I think probably, kind of got immersed in this when she started working with, with uh, you know, C-Level, the precursor to Argonne Digital, because Joy Beatty and Tony Chen 
at sea level had written this book on visual models and software requirements. Mm -hmm. So Candace, you were probably immersed in that from the very beginning. Yeah, that was actually one of my, my very first things I worked on when I joined sea level because I joined in March of 2012 when they were just writing the book. Mm -hmm. um, so I read that book probably five times <laughs> throughout the <laughs> editing process. <laughs> Um, a lot, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was awesome. And then I was always amazed at how amazing visual models are, even in an agile framework. Because a lot of people yeah. say, "Oh, well, we don't need we don't need to take time for models in agile. We'll just write the user stories." <laughs> but like getting to the user stories, the models give you that framework that says, "This is exactly what what I'm going to be doing and where." Um, so I use them in all of my story time sessions. Yeah. And the thing that I, I like about modeling too, Debbie, is that it allows you to adjust the level of abstraction at which you're thinking and sharing information. And uh, you can drill down when you need to, you can step back and see the forest instead of the trees. Uh, you can show the connections between different kinds of requirements, knowledge through the various models. I just think it's an enormously powerful technique. And as Candace said, uh, if somebody's working on a on a project, you know, maybe an agile project, and they think we don't need no stinking modeling, we don't have time to do that. And basically what they're saying is we don't have time to think. What we have time to do is iterate on code instead of on concepts and pictures, and that's a lot more expensive. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I do agree, because I think that what a model does is it gives you a basis for so many things. So because a model takes a particular perspective, doesn't it? So if you're drawing a data model, it's a data perspective. You know, if you're drawing a use case diagram, it's a, it's a use case perspective. And obviously they they intertwine. But when you've got that perspective, is it allows you to think, right, I'm going to look at this view of this particular world, and this is going to cause me to ask lots of questions. And in asking lots of questions, I'm then doing quite a lot of analysis and then I can challenge back and all those types of things. So to me, it's it really is almost the essential of essentials in, in my book, because that's how I think about things. What about you, Lisa? Is, is there anything that you think is a requirements essential that you really focus on? Uh, I really like the, the glossary, uh, the idea of having a glossary and a specification, um, yeah. just because, you know, you, you come to the party often late in a project, you know, especially BAs, we're not always involved in the beginning. And if, you, if you've not got the kind of, um, got the opportunity to, if you don't already have that knowledge, you've got to get up to speed really quickly. And, you know, any business has lots of acronyms and terms that you don't necessarily understand. I think a glossary is such a great way to, to get up to speed on the project. You know, if you hear terms being banded around, um, you can straight away make a note of them, go and ask somebody who knows, put it all into a document. So anybody else who's coming fresh into the project can also uh, kind of can learn from that as well. So I think that for me, that's a really, a really key thing to do. Yeah. And it's a it's, simple it's, thing to do. And what I think a lot of people maybe miss when it comes to these various practices is you can do them incrementally. You don't sit down one day and say, okay, let's write a project glossary. What you yeah. do is you grow it. You say, yes. hmm, here's a term, here's an abbreviation, yeah. here's something that I thought meant this and you thought it meant that. Let's write that down. That way yeah. we all have a common understanding. Yeah. And then you grow so, that over time. And so I, I think in terms of of growing bodies of knowledge, which makes it far less intimidating. It's kind of like a requirements traceability matrix, which is actually something we don't talk a lot about in the book. It's an important technique, but we didn't think it fit into the top 20. But if you get to the end of a project and say, okay, let's create a requirements traceability matrix, that's almost an impossible task. But if you do it, every time you do a piece of work, you say, what is this linked to? Then it's a trivial amount of task. It's, it's, just, it's just a habit that you get yes. into. 
Yeah. I, I like that. I like that distinction, Carl, because I completely agree with you. That that distinction between a huge task that looks so onerous and something that's just a habit that you just automatically do, it can yeah. really, really help. And and you know, I've worked in lots of environments where not understanding traceability has caused a lot of problems. So yeah, you know, it's it's always good to get into these good requirements habits. So, Candice, I was going to actually ask you about requirements management, funnily enough, and say, you know, and, and it comes back to something Carl was saying, in, in a more agile environment, quite often requirements management is considered to be a bit of an overhead. Mm -hmm. But you have got it as part of your essentials and practices, which I'm very happy about. So <laughs> can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. It's really interesting because you do it a little differently in agile frameworks, of course, but you still have to manage the requirements. If you don't manage them actively, then you're managing them inactively and that just leads to a lot of confusion. <laughs> so even in agile framework, they may call it, you know, backlog grooming or backlog management, but you're still managing those requirements as new things come in, where do they fit in the prioritization scale, which sprint are they going into? Um, how do I know which things are going in which releases, even if I'm doing sprint-wise releases? Um, all of that still comes into play for a product owner, just like it would for a business analyst. So I really wanted to emphasize that um, as we were writing those practices. Absolutely. And, and I think you're so right, because, you know, if, if you don't manage, I think you said, Carl, then you're managing inactively. And that's that's really not very helpful at all, is it, when we're talking about the world of requirements? Because ultimately, the requirements are the reason why something is is being done or is needed. You know, without that, what is the point in anything we do? You'd think that seems yeah. obvious. <laughs> you, you, you would sort of think so, but I'm not sure it always is sometimes, you know, with some of the conversations you have, you know. The other thing that I, I really like about the framework and the framework that you've used, and it's, it's something that, again, tips into something you mentioned earlier, is that separation of elicitation and analysis. Because, you know, too often in the past, they've been sort of merged together, don't you think? Yeah, and of course, in practice, they are you know heavily intertwined. You do a little thinking as you hear something. Um, but one thing that I had not seen in a requirements book before that I can recall is a discrete list of activities that characterize what do we mean when we say requirements analysis. Mm, yes. You know, it it's always seems sort of like this mm -hmm. mysterious thing that just kind of happens if you stare at them long enough and you're analyzing them in your brain, but but in, in reality, you can do more than that. So one of the things that's completely new in this book that I'd never written about before this explicitly is a set of uh, about 10 things you can do, I think 12 actually, things that you can do when analyzing individual requirements. What do you look for as you stare at them? You know, what thought processes do you go through to try to see are these the right requirements, good requirements, enough detail adequately understood to serve as a foundation for building a solution and so forth. And then there's another set, another list of about eight specific activities that you would do when analyzing sets of requirements to look at interrelationships and gaps and overlaps and conflicts, conflicting information and so forth. So I, I was really pleased that uh, we got the idea to, to take that approach and discreetly talk about when we say analyzing requirements, these are the things that you might want to think about as you're doing that consciously. 
Mm. Um, and that kind of se helps separate it, as you pointed out, Debbie, from just, uh, okay, what do you want? <laughs> you know, and that yes. elicitation <laughs> discussion. And that incidentally yeah. is the worst question you can ask during an elicitation discussion is what do you want? So we don't advocate yeah. that, <laughs> but sometimes yeah, that's what it boils down to, I'm afraid. And certainly many of the practices straddle elicitation analysis, right? Like when you're thinking about the data practice and understanding data, uh, your data hierarchy and your data objects, that's a little bit of a elicitation and a little bit of analysis. Um, and so we definitely, I wouldn't say struggle, but we definitely had discussions of like, right. well, really, which which section should this practice land in? Yeah, mm -hmm. no, that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up, Candace, because we did have those conversations, same as true of like quality attributes, you know, is that a, it's an elicitation thing, but it's an analysis thing and then a specification thing, you know, these all fit into categories. So we point out in the book, in fact, that there are not real clean, sharp dis distinctions between these activities that they kind of weave together, but it's helpful, I think, to, to keep in mind, what are you focusing on in any given moment as you're, as you're doing these things and working with data or quality attributes or use cases or whatever. Um, so we did, we did think about, well, should it go there? That's where it made sense once, but it's really more of this. So we, we sorted all that out, but they aren't super clean separations and we say so. Yeah. And, and I think that's exactly it. Cause I mean, business analysis is a bit like that, isn't it, Lisa? Things do sort of have yeah. that, that movement about, you know, it, it's not simple little boxes with things very neatly slotted in there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think Agile probably um, helps that as well in the sense that it, it's it's just a lot like Candice was saying, more iterative as well. Um, I think, am I right in thinking, Carl and Candice, does your book cover both approaches, sort of like Waterfall and Agile? I think it does, doesn't it? Well, it does. And in fact, that gets to a really important reason why Candice was part of this project. Um, because when I decided that this might be an interesting book to write, um, I think it was, I, I knew at the beginning, it was very important that it be written in a way and structured in a way so that not only would it appeal to people working on both agile and traditional projects, but it would be obvious to people in various communities that yes, this is something that, that we should think about on our project, no matter what life cycle approach we're taking. Well, I don't have, you know, agile experience myself, but I knew that Candace had a lot and so I was really happy to have Candace come on board and bring that perspective. And so she could correct you know, some of my misunderstandings. She could add a great deal of content. She had great stories from experiences on, on Agile projects that she'd worked on. And that's one of the wonderful things about working with a co-author is you get somebody else's personal experience yeah. stories to come in and broaden whatever you happen to have done or seen other people do. So uh, Candace has worked on, on agile projects for I think one more than 10 years, is that right? Something like mm -hmm. that. And so that was a real important perspective to bring and, and very important to make sure the book would appeal to, to both communities and that they would see the value of these practices. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and a lot of times, and in many cases, it's just small things. It's like, here's how you tweak it just a little bit because you know, agile is doing things in smaller and shorter increments, uh, but the practice itself is still very valuable. Mm. So I wanted to make sure we covered that as well in the book. Yes. Yeah. No, and, and it is it is good, I think, that you've been able to do that because so many projects now hybrid, really. And, yeah. you know, and, and I always think of requirements. And one of my favorite subjects is non-functional requirements, where <laughs> sometimes, yes, Lisa's, Lisa's smiling because she's <laughs> heard me go on about non-functional requirements before. <laughs> 
But not just you. <laughs> not just me, no. Thank you. Not just. But, you know, sometimes with non-functional requirements, you have to dig quite deep. And there's, there is quite a lot of detailed analysis that has to be done. And, and, and sometimes as well, there's, there's quite a broad um, scope, even to just one area of, of non-functional requirements. And I think, you know, understanding that actually you can work in different contexts, but understanding some of these deeper practices is also really quite valuable. That, that's something that I find, well, I think is quite important in the requirements sort of area. So I don't know, you know, what you think about, you know, that sort of more hybrid approach that, that does seem to be very evident these days. Well, the thing that uh, we did with around that with non-functional requirements or quality attributes in particular, uh, and I agree with uh, Lisa and Debbie that I'm a big fan of that uh, important aspect of the conversation as well. Uh, the, one of the things about that is that some of the quality attributes apply to specific bits of functionality and others are much broader in scope and can affect the entire architecture of the application. And that's yeah. not something that you write down on a story card and say, well, when we get to this one, we'll figure out what we're going to do about performance. You can't do that. You know, right. It just doesn't work. <laughs> and so you have to understand that those things thread through the whole project and, and uh, have very fundamental uh, design implications. And we actually do address the point you made, Debbie, about uh, some of these things get very deep. You can get a huge amount of complexity from what appears to be a, a trivial uh, requirement. And I think the example we give is something like, uh, okay, the, you might have a high-level quality requirement around security. It says the, the system shall require multi-factor authentication for security. Well, that opens a gigantic can of worms with a whole lot of additional questions, a lot of details, a lot of stuff to implement. And you don't just sort of either patch that on or just toss it out as one requirement. It's the beginning of a bunch of conversations. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because that is always the one that I always talk about is security <laughs> requirements, because, you know, in so many different arenas, the complexity of that just comes up over and over again. And you have to think about it. And if we if we try to take a broad brush approach, we are going to get tripped up um, in, in my experience mm -hmm. over and over again. So, yeah, it's funny. You, you've, you've highlighted the one that I always go on about, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> so what do, what do you think, Candice? Are there any particular areas of NFRs that, that always strike you as needing that bit of extra analysis? Absolutely. And we talk about it in the book. Um, performance is a huge one, especially when you're in those agile projects building iteratively, because if you set your benchmarks and your performance requirements on the early stages when you've only built the simplest little workflow, well, obviously you're going to degrade as you keep adding more and more functionality and more complexity. So you have to hit that right balance of like, well, what do I expect this full workflow when I have full functionality versus when I'm halfway through iterating on it? Um, and then benchmark and test that appropriately. Yes. Yeah. One of, one of the other um, very significant NFR area that, that certainly comes to the fore a lot with the work that we do is around accessibility as well and understanding accessibility requirements and um, Lisa and I were at a conference recently where there was quite a lot of discussion around mm -hmm. this sort of area um, and looking at diversity and things like that and and actually really understanding requirements around that when you're looking at solutions um, not at the point where the solution is being rolled out is actually very important as well don't you think Lisa because 
that's an area we also talk late. about, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. They can be overlooked, can't they, sometimes? I think it's it, they're so vital, really. Um, I think people tend to focus on the functional aspects first and the behaviours of a system or solution. And actually, it, it's the whole package, isn't it? It's, it's outside of that, the external constraints as well that you need to think about. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, I mean, I think this is great to have an essentials book on requirements because think there has been a bit of a tendency over the last few years that people keep telling me that requirements aren't important anymore which <laughs> I know sorry <laughs> but actually you know and I always say but requirements are everywhere you know not just for software you know requirements are for life and um, and they're everywhere really and if we don't think about it then we just end up with things we complain about. It's it's that simple, really. So it's well, for the people great. who think that. Sorry, sorry, I broke in no, there. Go on, the, for the people who think that, uh, I would challenge them. In fact, I would challenge anyone who reads this book to to go down the list of practices. It's not a challenge; it's really a, an invitation. Go down the list of the twenty practices and ask yourself: Is this something that would add value to our project? Is this something that we can safely ignore and not get in trouble? So for example, practice number one, understand the problem before converging on a solution. Who would not think that's a good idea? You know, <laughs> Define business objectives, which basically is a way to answer the question, why are we doing this? That yeah. seems like a good idea to me. Now, some of these things you might decide, you know, don't apply to you, like uh, identify events and responses. Maybe you think, well, Events aren't an important or useful way for us to think about that on our project. And if you ask yourself that question and come to that conclusion thoughtfully, then you can maybe skip that, that set of, of activities. But I think if you look at these 20 practices from that point of view and say, would this add value to our project? Would this help us be more efficient, more effective, better meet customer needs, better achieve what we're trying to as a business? I'm pretty sure almost everyone's going to say, yeah, that would be a good thing to think about. Yeah. So that's a fabulous way to do it, isn't it? And using it, it as a checklist almost, just to make sure you've considered all, all those great practices. Yeah. In fact, Definitely. we've got a lot of checklists in here. There are a lot of sections, and I hadn't really realized this as we were writing this, Candice. Maybe it jumped out at you, but we have a lot of uh, practice descriptions where we have lists of questions to ask or lists of things you might want to do or things that are important. And we turned those into checklists. And so uh, the website for this book is softwarerex, softwarereqs.com. And we have about a dozen uh, or more useful downloads there, including document templates, these checklists, some spreadsheet tools, and other things people might found useful. So I think it was one of our reviewers, actually, who said, gee, have you thought about putting these into a checklist? And I hadn't, but I think it was a great idea. So we have a bunch of those kinds of checklists, because I find those very helpful. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point because, again, if you are, you know, starting a piece of work or even if you're starting as a relatively new person in this particular world, checklists are really helpful. And having questions to ask, that's incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a great idea. So, you know, thank you so much for joining us on this BA Brew. Um, I think we've got some really great hints and tips. And obviously, it looks like a book that uh, is going to be invaluable to all of us. So thank you very much for writing it. And as I say, for joining us to discuss it. So um, that's it from this particular episode. And if any of our listeners and viewers have enjoyed this and want to suggest topics to us, that would be absolutely fabulous. Um, 
So I'll just say thank you very much and goodbye. And if you wish to contact us, it is babrew.assistkd.com. Thank you.